show i'm eric i'm sean and we are the vertiguys we're checking out the dark side of dc we're here to recap and review vertigo comics starting with the big three sandman hellblazer preacher that's the last time we get to say that i guess we can say it in the next anyway yeah so we are covering today the final three issues of sandman yes this will be our final recap episode for sandman in right around three weeks our final, final Sandman episode, we're going to have a panel discussion with our friends Ryan and Joanna. They host a podcast called What's Lightsaber's Precious, which is very funny and informative. You should check that out if you haven't. It is somehow about Lord of the Rings and Star Wars. I don't know how, but they make it work. <laughs> so this is Sandman issue number what? This is Sandman number 73. 73. So I guess we should very briefly recap what's come before. I'm not sure that there's anything we really need to say except... Morpheus died. Morpheus died. And there was a funeral. Yeah, we're picking up a few loose plot threads here. Each of these issues does relate to something that went before. Mm -hmm. But we'll kind of cross that bridge as we come to it. Probably worth mentioning that Morpheus was replaced in his role as Dream of the Endless by young Daniel Hall. So picking up on Sandman number three, The Wake, an epilogue, Sunday morning, that's morning with a U, so this is essentially the ending of The Wake, and this is written by Neil Gaiman, art by Michael Zuli, colors by Daniel Vazo, separations by Digital Chameleon, lettered by Todd Klein, and edited by Karen Berger. So the Michael Zuli art is continuing from The Wake. Right. And we liked it a lot in The Wake. It's very grounded, works really well for this kind of story. Yeah. Do you think separations, what do you suppose that means? Do you think that's the same thing as layering? This feels like research that we should have done before, but <laughs> I know that it's part of the coloring process. Okay, so so is layering. So I actually think it's probably the same thing. Okay. So we have the cover here. Some kind of valve? Uh, this is the cover, actually. Oh. Well, what's this? That's just an interstitial of some kind. But what is it? No idea, man. Weird-shaped bottle? Could be a weird-shaped bottle. Maybe it's an ether flask. Maybe we'll post the picture of the weird-shaped bottle and people can decide for themselves. Yeah. But here, the actual cover is we have a skull with a headdress of leaves. Yeah, it's on a yellow backdrop and it's got these leaves tucked into its headband. So we open on Robbie Gadling, who we know as Hob Gadling. Yes. And he is traveling with an attractive companion. And he is holding forth about why renaissance fairs are bullshit yeah he's en route to the renaissance fair and he he is saying that they didn't have the renaissance in england he goes on to call the ren fair someone's idea of the english middle ages mixed with bloody disneyland yeah also it comes out that he's never actually been to one before he's just you know he's just already <laughs> made up his mind <laughs> informed contempt yeah his companion gwen asks why he came why do people slow down to look at car crashes, he says. Because they want to see if someone's dead, and they want to be sure it's not them. Which has nothing to do with spending a Sunday having fun. Right? Right. 
It's not clear immediately, but we're going to find out that Gwen and Hob are a couple. Yes. And it is Sunday, but it's obviously a much later Sunday than the Sunday on which Kindly Ones ended. Right. In that story, Hob had recently lost a wife. He was in mourning. And also, I, we are going to find out eventually that this is in America. Yeah. So some time has passed. Gwen makes Robbie turn around and stand guard while she changes into her costume. Her era-appropriate garb. For a certain value of era-appropriate. <clears throat> Pretty, my lord, how dost I look? Thou lookest passing fair, my lady. Except thou manglest the queen's good English, and your tits are hanging out. As they head into the fair, Gwen mentions something she has learned. That there really was a Sir Robert Gadling. Yeah, and there's a guy there at the fair who knows more about it. I wondered, will Hob want to talk to that guy, or will Hob be trying to avoid that guy? Right. We know, of course, that Hob being immortal, the previous Robert Gadling was Hob. Yep. Gwen mentions that the other Robert Gadling was a slaver, and Hob starts apologizing profusely. Probably worth I... mentioning here that Gwen is black. I think he's the one who mentions that he was a slaver. Oh, yep. Yeah, he does. Yeah. She just mentions that he owned ships. Hob adds that this Robert Gadling was a slaver. Yeah, we had a previous issue where we saw Hobbes' decision to get out of the slavery business, and this makes it clear that he's still feeling some guilt about ever having been in it, which, good. Yeah, fair. That was back in his first appearance in Sandman number 13, Men of Good Fortune. Gwen feels that the Americans have more to feel guilty about for slavery, but Hobb explains that it was the English who owned the ships and really turned it into a big business. Right, and that was his role specifically. She mentions the commonly held defense that those Africans were enslaved by their Africans anyway. Hobb says, but it's supply and demand. They wouldn't have been enslaved in such numbers if there wasn't someone to sell them to, which makes sense. He doesn't let the Spanish off the hook either. He mm -hmm. mentions that they were the first Europeans to get into the business. Yeah, and he tells kind of a horror story about how once smuggling became illegal, that doesn't make any sense. Smuggling is always illegal. Once slaving became illegal, they would still smuggle the slaves, and the slaves only needed to survive one voyage in three to make a profit. Right, which means that they would sometimes cast all the slaves overboard at once, and they would be chained up and they would drown. Yeah. It's pretty horrifying. And yeah. It's understandable why he still feels shitty about it. Right. Once again, he's still haunted by this as well he should be. She comments that she must be the first black woman that he's dated because otherwise his previous girlfriend would have killed him in self-defense. From his throwing up too much guilt. Right. Guilt and graphic details I think she's objecting to. Mm, yeah, that's a fair call. Now Hob mentions his friend who told him that slavery was a bad thing. This is Morpheus. What happened to your friend? He died. Now, Gwen is actually working at the fair, so Hob has to entertain himself. Yeah, she's some kind of nobility. Yes. Although, she thinks that she'll never be made the queen because there were no black queens of England. Hob explains that that's actually a misconception. Catherine of Aragon. Trust me, if Catherine of Aragon had been in Alabama in the 1950s, they'd have made a ride in the back of the bus. So, they go their separate ways, and Hob arrives at the bookbinder? Yes. I think we've already been told that the bookbinder is the one who knows about the previous Robert Gadling. Yeah, and it's also mentioned here that Hob also used to be a printer, so he has some knowledge of the subject. Right. These books are all blank. 
Best kind. You can write anything in them. Any book in the world starts with blank pages. Write your dreams or poems. Secrets or recipes. Write a book about these noodles. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really obscure joke. It's, it's kind of the voice that you were doing, though. <laughs> he makes the paper and tans the leather and does the whole book binding by hand. Right, so he does the whole process and he does it as old-timey authentic as he can. Right. So this guy has something pretty impressive, which he shows to Hobb. He has an original Robert Gadling printed book. The book is signed to someone, but the name is illegible. I can't read the name. Leslie or Laurie, maybe? Laurel. Laurel. You know, it could be a Laurel at that. Robbie tells him he did a good job at the bookbinding and asks him where he can get a beer. He says nope. even old Rob Gadling would have been impressed. Yeah. <laughs> but then as he walks away, he says, silly old bugger. He doesn't ask that guy where he can get a beer. He asks a different guy where he can get a beer. And is told. Yeah, this guy... Mustache guy? I was thinking that the guy who directs him to the beer tent is the same guy with the lamb. The insult comic lamb? Yes. That guy turns up in a minute here. So, he's leaning against a tree, drinking a beer, muttering to himself, it's all bollocks. All stupid, bloody, buggering bollocks. Yeah, he's got this pale beer in a see-through plastic cup. It's very classically festival beer or event beer. Right. The guy with the insult comic lamb comes by, and Bob starts joking about a vegetable lamb. Yeah, and this kind of comes back to his guilt about slavery, right? Because right, once again, talking about... The vegetable lamb turns out to be the cotton plant. Yes. Which it was, I guess, at one time thought or superstitioned that the cotton that grows from a cotton plant is the same thing as the wool that grows from a lamb. Yeah, it's kind of the same thing as, like, the theory that a unicorn was just a rhinoceros seen by someone who'd never seen one before. It looks kind of like a horse with a horn if you squint the right way. And, and it's something that they didn't have a frame of reference for, so they described it the way they could. Right. But yeah, getting into the subject of cotton gets him maudlin again about having been a slaver. Eh, mister, you are drunk on a Sunday morning. <laughs> Drunk? Me? I'm not yet in the land of the drunk, but I can see it without a telescope if you get my drift, my fuzzy little friend. I'm curious about the timeline here, whether it's likely that the insult comic lamb is specifically like a conglomeration of Lamb Chop's Playtime and Triumph the Insult Comic Dog. I don't think Triumph the Insult Comic Dog existed yet when this was published. Okay. I could be wrong about that. As they walk to the beer tent, Robbie starts holding forth on the inaccuracies of the rent fair. Yeah, he says the main thing about it is that it's not filthy and the people aren't sick enough. Yeah, <laughs> there should be shit everywhere. Animal shit, people shit, cow shit, horse shit. You waded through the stuff. You should spray them all with shit as they come through the gates. He's being a real grump now. He meets Cordelia, the waitress at the beer tent, mm -hmm. and he makes her kind of a douchey offer. <laughs> so he offers her a hundred dollars to bring him uh, as much beer as he can drink as long as he sits there and also to not give him any old-timey talk well but he also basically says not to talk to him at all he says yeah i never want to hear you shout huzzah 20 pounds for the king again or hear anything else out of you and i am given to understand that this is a thing that people sometimes actually try in drinking establishments okay it's just 
I'm going to hand you a, a pile of money. Don't ask me any questions. Just keep bringing me drinks. Mm. And you'll get to keep what's left. And generally, like, waitstaff and bartenders don't appreciate it very much. Because it is douchey. And because there's hardly ever anything left anyway. It's usually not even a good tip by the time they're done drinking. I see. I kind of thought, what with it being... Well, with it being festival beer, maybe it is unreasonably expensive. I kind of assumed she would end up taking something like 50 bucks home. But yeah, it is definitely unfriendly. And yeah. not really in the spirit of a pub. Yeah, I, Hob might be an exception to that second part, where there's no money left by the time that he's done drinking. Yeah. But nonetheless, it's still... Like you said, it's still unfriendly. And he's kind of telling them not to do their jobs the way that they've been trained to do them. True. Which, you know, when when you work retail, <laughs> a customer trying to bully you out of doing your job the way you've been trained to do it is not <laughs> is not fun. Yeah. There are people who object to being treated with a great deal of sort of politeness or courtesy. But that's not really cool because that's been drummed into you as a as a retail employee or as a waitstaff employee so thoroughly it's it's reflex. Yeah. I mean, yeah, if you're if you're at a place where the customer service is really obnoxious, especially if it, where the sales pressure is really obnoxious, mm -hmm. I can sympathize with a customer who says, "Look, don't give me the whole spiel." Yeah. You know. But that's different from like kind of like trying to radically divorce them from the the way they've been trained and say, "Listen, I'm going to lay down the terms of our interaction." Mm -hmm. We've probably spent too long on this point. <laughs> but <laughs> Okay, yeah. But he makes, he, he makes her a fairly dickish offer, and then he sits there and drinks 11 beers. Yes, and he notes with disappointment that the beer is cold, which is inauthentic. There's an exchange here that I enjoyed as he's disappeared from the beer tent momentarily. Those toilets are pretty bloody disgusting. We strive for realism. Around this time he notices, some distance away, there is a fake Middle Ages pub that is now boarded up and condemned. <laughs> the sign says, Grog. <laughs> There's also a sign out front that says, Condemned by Order of the King, which I liked. Right, the era-appropriate signage. So, Hob goes inside the pub, and there he meets Death. Yeah, he lights a convenient candle, and he finds himself in this sort of pseudo-Middle Ages environment. And Death is there. Hi, do you mind if I join you? You don't sing, do you? To myself sometimes, not in public. Welcome over here, then. Sit down, have a drink. You can sit next to me. I don't know if it's this piss beer or it's the mood I'm in, but I'm getting no drunker for all that I've been drinking. He swears that he's seen her before. Many times, yes. You've got to be a real heartbreaker. Well, don't tell me. I'll remember in a minute. Never forget a face, me. That's bollocks for a start. I've forgotten more faces. I'm surprised I'd forget yours, though. He mentions that she sounds English, like Old English. She asks how he's enjoying the Renfest. He says he hates it. This isn't history. It's not the past. It's a moldering great lump of now. That's what I think. What do you think? I think it's wonderful. All the different kinds of people here, the ones who like dressing up, and the singers, and the craftsmen, and the street theater, and all the different types of people who come to see it and have a great day out. They're all having a marvelous time. And I suppose it doesn't bother you that the past was never like this? Why should it? You weren't there. What do you care? I care. And I was there, Hob. I remember. Who are you? Now, she mentions that he knew her brother. Yeah, and he, uh, he says, I, I've known a lot of people, girly. So, he's kind of still denying it, but he's stumbling a little bit. Maybe the realization is coming to him. Yeah. And he's covering. You used to meet him for a drink, once a century. So he is dead. I had a dream back in January. 
I knew he'd died. I knew it was a true dream. Now he remembers seeing her at the wake and other times before, and he starts to suss out what she is here for. So what are you, the queen of love? You're pretty enough. No. No, I know who you are. Why are you here? To talk. I thought I owed it to you. Or to him, maybe. You want to find out if I'm ready to call it a day? He has a great line here. I don't know. Death's a funny thing. I used to think it was a big sudden thing, like a huge owl that would swoop down out of the night and carry you off. I don't anymore. I think it's a slow thing, like a thief who comes to your house day after day, taking a little thing here and a little thing there, and one day you walk around your house and there's nothing there to keep you, nothing to make you want to stay. Yeah, she says this is an idea she's heard before. He sort of asks if there's any truth to it, and she just gives him a little disbelieving smile. Like, she is the thing that swoops down. She's the one who knocks. Exactly. <laughs> he asks what the afterlife is like, and she asks what he thinks, which generally seems to be the rule in this verse, whatever you think it'll be. He quotes Kipling on reincarnation. He never wasted a tree or a leaf. Why should he squander souls? So is this it? Game over? All done? Maybe. And if it is? Then they'll find you slumped over your beer. Now, Hobbes says that he always expected Morpheus to outlive him, being so much older and smarter. He notes the impermanence of the world. This building is barely 20 years old and already condemned. He says there'd be kind of a neatness to dying here, in this fake medieval place, like coming full circle. Yeah, it's very much like the medieval place where he first met Death and Morpheus. Right, so she comes right out and asks him, Is that what you want, Hub? If it is, I can give it to you. Just take my hand. I appreciate the offer. I really do. But I don't think so, love. Thanks. I'm not ready to die. Not today. Not yet. Maybe not ever. Anyway, Gwen would kill me. It wouldn't be polite to separate from your girlfriend at, at a Ren fair and then go off with another woman. <laughs> That's the way Sky Masterson would put it. Right, yeah. Don't what? bring that up, Sean. I'm still suffering from my Nathan Detroit cold. <laughs> <laughs> this is calling back, you know, to the big recurring theme of the series, change and whether people can do it. And even having lost, you know, his, his one immortal friend, the one constant in his immortal life, Hob doesn't change. Death doesn't sound like something he wants to try, ever. So Death moves toward him as if to embrace him. And then as we turn the page, we find him slumped on the table. Doesn't it kind of look like he's wrapped up like a mummy in this panel? I can see why you say that. <laughs> uh, yeah, so he's laying there. He's dreaming he's a mummy. No, he's not a mummy. Nobody came in and wrapped him while he was sleeping in the, in the bar. How's <laughs> was that for a prank? <laughs> just wrapping people up like mummies. Mummifying them, even. Uh, anyway, Gwen comes in and wakes him up, and he wakes up. He has not died. Yeah, she says, Delia says you disgraced yourself. I thought disgracing yourself meant, like, specifically, like, peeing your pants. Okay. I don't think he did that, because we no, saw I him don't... get up and go to the bathroom. I don't think so either, but I thought that, that's... I thought that, that was an expression for, for peeing your pants. Hmm, I don't know. Maybe he didn't drink as much beer as she had hoped? Oh, like, he just didn't do as good of a job as a drinker? Right. But she gets to keep however much money he doesn't drink up, so, you know. Yeah. 
So she'd want him to drink less. I mean, it could be that he was rude, but I don't feel like... Her good humor doesn't seem to indicate that she's saying he was rude to her friends. Yeah, it doesn't seem like he got falling over drunk either, so... No, although he is asleep now. Yeah, I guess so. So I guess I'm not sure why they say he disgraced himself. But they say it, folks. It's in this comic book. She asks, so who was the girl? Apparently someone looked into the bar and saw him talking to a girl. Yeah, she was the sister of a friend of mine from the old country. Funny you're running into her here. Not really. I think she gets around a lot. And as they're having this conversation, they pass by ye old cash machine. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is hilarious. Yeah, and again, I think the Michael Zuli art is an asset here, because the way that everything looks very real and grounded in his art emphasizes the funny of the anachronistic elements of the Ren Fair. See, I actually think that his art has kind of like a timeless feel to it. Okay. A little bit. He's not drawing the folks in medieval garb in such a way that they look super fairy taleish and like clash with like the realism of the way Hob in ordinary clothes is dressed, you mm -hmm. know? It's like the folks are just folks. The stuff is just stuff. Mm -hmm. And so you're able to get a kind of almost timeless vibe out of it. Where, like, instead of intentionally drawing the old things and the new things in clashing styles, mm -hmm. it's like, this stuff is all just kind of coexisting at the Ren Fair. Yeah, know? I think that's what we found an asset during the wake, too, is the, the right. way that the more absurd character designs looked real. And I think that's an asset in the scene where he's in the old-fashioned bar, too. Zuli draws it as if it really is a medieval bar. Yeah. This is great. The weather. Now, this is proper weather. Chilly and wet. Most of the olden days happened in the rain. They don't tell you that in the history books. Yeah, he goes on to tell her that he was there, that he's as old as Methuselah, but she just laughs. Yeah, they have a cute moment here together. She's going to meet some friends at the mead tent. He says he'll stay behind and have a bit of a think. Yeah, she points out that by think he means that he's going to sleep. Yes, I guess he is an old man after all. He needs his couple of naps a day. Well, I mean, you saying you don't? <laughs> I didn't mean to express contempt for napping. <laughs> no, but you don't like naps. That's No, that is true. I don't like naps. I don't I don't like sleeping. I would rather be awake doing stuff. I see. I see. So it's not just naps. You don't like sleeping at night either. I mean, I I do it. I <laughs> You do it. <laughs> Your body prompts you and you're like, "If I'm Mark, I don't want the internet here to get the impression that I'm popping sleeping pills or anything." Jesus. No, or I... not sleeping pills, like caffeine pills is what I meant. Oh, uppers. Sure. No, that's what I'm not doing. Right. You're not doing either one. No. No. You're, but... you're drug free. You took the dare challenge. But I don't like napping. <laughs> but yeah, he falls asleep. Yeah, so Gwen comes back and wakes him up. It's been about an hour, and she asks if he had a good dream. And he says it was a good dream. I dreamed of the friend I told you about, the dead one. We were on this beach together. I remember being surprised to meet him. And then another guy joined them. A big red-haired guy in a red vest. He was a bit like a pavement artist I met ages ago. Nice chap. Bloody useless artist, though. Right. And we were going on a journey. He realizes that... Morpheus is dead, and that means that this must be a dream. And he tells Morpheus, hey, this is a dream that we're in, isn't it? Morpheus laughs and nods, and then they all start walking together. And then three of us went off together into the sunset, into the end of the story. And then you woke me up. So what was the end of the story, she says. Well, there's only one way to end a story, really. Don't tell me. They all lived happily ever after? That's the one. 
I had a lovely day today, Gwenny. Thanks. You what? I will never understand you, Robbie Gadling, not if I live to be a thousand. Well, stranger things have happened. <laughs> so that's a nice little story. Nice to see Hob again, nice to see him more and Morpheus a little bit. And I, I do like the scene between him and Death quite a bit. She coming and offering him, you know, once again, have things changed? Is Death something that you would want? Yeah, I think that that would be like a perfect final issue for the series. Okay, you would have been happy to end on that point? Yeah. Either by shuffling it to the end or mm-hmm. by omitting the next the next two issues. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll see. We'll get into them. Yeah. But yeah, I actually think that that's a, that right there is a great ending for the series. That's a, a really nice issue. I tend to like Hobgadling issues a lot, and, mm-hmm. this, and this one is no exception. Yeah, and it's once again sort of telling us life goes on. People die, things are lost, stories end, but life goes on. So, that brings us to Sandman number 74, Exiles. Written by Neil Gaiman. Art and Colors by John J. Muth. Separations by Digital Chameleon. Lettered by Todd Klein, edited by Karen Berger, and a cover by Dave McKeon. Didn't Mega Man have to fight Digital Chameleon at one point? (laughs) (laughs) I can't remember the name of the fucking one. I think it's Sting Chameleon. It's Sting Chameleon, but there's also like an internet peacock in around X4 or 5. I don't don't know what... I can't remember what the actual adjective is. It's not internet (laughs) peacock. Maybe it's cyber peacock? I think it is cyber peacock. (laughs) This level takes place in, like, the internet, and there's data flying all over the place. That's dope. Um, (laughs) It's too bad. I don't think that we have seen John J. Muth on this podcast before, although he was half of the art team for Wolverine Havoc Meltdown. Oh, that's a good comic book. That's like one of the comic books I have that I don't like to read because... You want to keep it in good condition? Yeah, and because it's so like, just the way that it's bound is like, just by reading it, you're like spreading it. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I was going to say, sadly, I think think Mega Man X is one of the few things that if I had an SNES classic, I could play that is not on the Switch right now. Oh, interesting. Okay. Uh, Mega Man X is one of my all-time favorite games. It is such a good game. Yeah, I think Mega Man X and F-Zero are both games that, like, if we'd had our brothers as kids, we never would have played. But actually, like, they were totally awesome and formative. <laughs> That's interesting. It always seemed weird to me in retrospect, though, that F-Zero is a racing game without any multiplayer. That is kind of weird. Yeah. It's a solo multiplayer experience. Yeah. It has a leaderboard. Oh, yeah, so you can save times. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Mega Man X was a gift, and it was a very good gift, it turns out. Yeah, who, who did we get that from? Probably our parents. Mm. This would have happened in, like, 1994, right? Yeah, around about there. I think we only played F-Zero because Aunt Sarah owned it. Mm-hmm. Both have, both have really good music. That's true. In particular. Like, they both have tunes that I still remember. Did I ever tell you this story? Um, one time I got really into the Street Fighter 2 soundtrack for like a week, and I became convinced that it was by the same person who did the Mega Man X soundtrack, so I looked it up, and it's not at all. I was just wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the world of chiptune is bigger than you knew. Yeah. So, this issue is entitled Exiles. The cover has a statue story. This is one of the weirdest fucking covers. <laughs> Maybe you can explain this to a, to a degree that I didn't understand. It's a statue's torso rising up out of a dining table. There is a carafe on the table next to it. The statue is wearing a cube for a head. 
and a cup is sitting upside down on the bottom of the cube. Probably he's from Wisconsin. Right, exactly. He's, a, he's just a Packers fan. Yeah. Well, it's almost like if you turn it upside down, it's a statue coming out of a table again. Uh, I guess that's true. Maybe this is to represent the two meetings that occur in the course of the issue. That he has a, a drink with two different people. Yeah, there you go. Okay, so this art is a big shift. Well, that's not very nice. Uh, <laughs> shift. <laughs> shift. <laughs> yeah, it's not really, like, we're not in a true comic book style here. It's got a very painted look to it. And there are no dialogue bubbles. There's just, like, dialogue lines. Yeah, I'm not sufficiently informed on the history of like Chinese art to say exactly what style this is but it has a very kind of a painted scroll or tapestry look to it. Sure. Yeah, it's actually less like Chinese art mm -hmm. and more like a kind of western painter doing an impression of some Chinese flourishes, I think. Okay. There's a there's a level of remove to you? Yeah, I think so. Okay. And it's also almost all white with there is some color but a lot of details drawn in black yeah it, a lot of it is in black and white so uh, we get opening narration from a guy who it's going to be like three quarters of the issue until we learn his name but his name is master lee he reminisces about his youth he has a conversation with a goldfinch in which a goldfinch says we are who we choose to be and i dream about dreams about dreams uh, nightingale says the second part oh yeah i have written says neil gaiman <laughs> right. But no, it comes out that this guy is a prefect. The actual circumstances of his exile do not come out quite yet, but he is being sent into exile. Okay, we find out that he's a prefect, we find out that he's sent off into exile. Mm -hmm. I have tens of thousands of cash, and a wife, a son, and many concubines. Only the phoenix arises and does not descend. Thus it comes about that now, in the gray of my years... I am sent far from the court and family, and all I know, into exile. He also mentions that he has dreamt about the responsibilities of emperors, which reminded me of the three issues, the distant mirrors issues, which were all about emperors, sort of. Oh, yeah. Um, and he says that he has had dreams about dreams about dreams. This narration, by the way, is a letter to a friend which is being written in Lee's mind. He doesn't intend to send this letter. No, it's a mental exercise to keep him distracted. While going through the desert. Yep, and he remembers the fireworks the day his son was born, but now he says his son is dead and he is in exile. And this is where we get the explanation. A little bit. My son allied himself with the people of the White Lotus. You are lucky that I have left you your head, the Emperor told me. Yeah, now, the failed rebellion that Lee's son was a member of could be one of several White Lotus or Red Turban rebellions that occurred in the mid-14th or late 18th centuries in China. Those seem like a long way apart. Yeah, I guess the White Lotus kept on causing trouble. But you said the mid-14th or late 18th. You didn't say or somewhere in between. So it's just like... <laughs> it's just like one of... You know. <laughs> These are the White Lotus rebellions that I could find. <laughs> I see. They're 500 years apart. <laughs> Biding their time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, like Arnim Zola in The Winter Soldier. They were biding their time. Doesn't he say, Greetings, Dr. Captain America. No, that doesn't make sense. Dr. Captain? <laughs> Dr. Captain America. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, you know the rules. Captains are good, doctors are bad. 
So Lee starts to recount a story which has happened on his journey into the desert. There was a white cat, and it led him outside of a village to her kittens. But he was told by the people in the village, we kill kittens on sight because there's too little food even for people. But Lee didn't care about that, and he took the smallest kitten with him. We have barely enough water for this desert crossing for ourselves. Only a fool would bring a kitten here. Three times today he has scratched me with his claws. His tiny eyes are still a muddy blue. We get a nice panel here of the kitten tucked up in his arms with only the eyes in color. Yeah, that is a good drawing of a cat. (laughs) When we stop to relieve ourselves, the kitten does also. I hope that he will live to reach the town of Wei, beyond the desert. It is in Wei that I will live my remaining years. Now we get the first actual dialogue in the comic. We had dialogue in the scene where he talked about the kitten with the locals, but that was still part of his recounting. This is actual dialogue. A servant or guide thought that Lee spoke, but he didn't say anything. He was just planning his letters. And then Lee says that he's heard the desert is full of illusions and ghosts and fox spirits. It is true, master. The guide, we learn, has silver bells on his sleeve and on his horse in case of a sandstorm so they can find each other. Oh, yeah. I'm sure that's... I'm sure you're right. I just thought they were like charms. Mm. Like, because he's superstitious. Or at least a little bit stitious. (laughs) Slightly stitious? Yeah. This is calling back to another issue, though, too. Because we had an issue of this series where a character was lost in the desert and needed sound to sort of help find his friends. And that callback is going to continue. Yeah, this whole issue is really like a sequel to the Soft Places. Mm-hmm. That was Marco Polo, and that was in Sandman number 39. My heart is heavy within me. I dream of a cup of wine. I imagine a porcelain cup. I pour out the hot wine and sip exquisitely. Alas, we have no wine, and the wine of memory is thin. His face getting whipped by sand reminds Lee of a time that his wife whipped a servant girl. A gold ring had gone missing, and the wife whipped the servant to death. Later, they found the ring in the floorboards. So, you know, overreaction. Yeah, just a a sad, shitty story. (laughs) Made me mad. Fair enough. The sand blows up, and then when it clears, Lee is alone. And he waits for the silver bells, but he hears nothing. He starts seeing illusions. This dragon comes down from the sky, which is what happens when you walk at night. Yes. According to the video game Drakan. Yeah, for the Super Nintendo. Which, yeah, which we remember well and never got very far in. On account of the dragons? <laughs> well, yeah, I, dragons and sometimes space cats, I think. Yeah, the space cat. This was a weird game and hard. You gotta watch the fuck out for space cats, buddy. We should put it up on the Switch. I bet it would be fun with save states. You would play that again, given the chance? Yeah. With save states, I'll play anything. <laughs> <laughs> So a figure approaches. He smells of crushed mulberries, which is the smell that Lee remembers from his youth. This is his son. You are dead, I tell him. And he bows his head. I am dead, my father, he tells me. They cut off my head and my hands. My body was thrown into a pit, and all my white lotus magic could not save me. So Lee asks if that means, if their meeting means that he is dead too. Nope, the son says. My father is still among the living. Yeah, and then he yells at his son, Had you been content with life's surfaces, we would all have been happier. Nothing good came of your studies into the magical arts. At this point, the kitten runs off, and Lee gives chase. Father, I am your son. That is only a kitten. Why do you abandon me to chase after it? Lee says that his son is dead. The kitten is living, and it needs my help. 
Sun warns him against going to the tent. Lee adds, I am alive and you are dead. I shall take my own counsel. This is a strange desert. The spurs of broken ships are all around me. So he chases the kitten to a tent up on a hill. And as he enters the tent, Lee finds a pale man with big hair. And his speech bubbles are black. Why are you here in this home of demons? Are you lost, or are you also a demon? I am no demon, Honorable Master Lee. <laughs> you know my name? Now I am assured you are a demon. <laughs> oh, I also like that he tells Morpheus that his flesh is too old and stringy to be good eating. <laughs> Morpheus introduces him to his kitten, and we find out his name is Walks the Night Alone. Yes. Cats, of course, were once the dominant species on the planet. Right, until humans dreamed themselves the dominant species. Yes. And cats still very much have a society and connection to the dreaming. And one of them has a plan that if enough cats dream it, they can be the masters of the humans once again. Yeah. This is all, I think, Sandman number 20. Dream of a Thousand Cats. Also contains. A number of very good drawings of cats. It does indeed. Morpheus explains that Lee has walked into a soft place. It's a place at the edge of the dreaming, where it intersects with unknown lands in reality. So Lee says that he's probably not going to see tomorrow, and he has already run into his dead son, but he doesn't think that Morpheus means him any harm, so he makes a request. For many leagues now, I have been dreaming of a small cup of wine. Not a skin of wine, for a skin of wine would make me merry and foolish. Merely a cup of wine to warm me. Morpheus recalls a time in the past, or maybe the future, when a young man gave him water in this same desert, in the soft place. That would be Marco Polo in Sandman number 39. It would be ungracious of me to give you less than he gave me. Morpheus pours him a cup of wine, and Lee drinks. That was good. Good as my dreams. Morpheus rejects payment, so Lee says he will give the coin to the next beggar he meets. Now Morpheus starts telling a story. There was a sage who loved his son, but who did not mourn when his son died. I did not mourn him before he was born, and I will not mourn him now that he is gone. I think that was foolishness. You mourn, for it is proper to mourn. But your grief serves you. You do not become a slave to grief. You bid the dead farewell, and you continue. Indeed. Now, Morpheus said something very similar to that. Yeah, Lee's advice is very similar to what Morpheus said to Orpheus when... His wife had died. Right. It's not much of a stretch to imagine that Morpheus is talking to some extent about himself and Orpheus. His own failure to react properly to Orpheus's death. And as Morpheus seems lost in thought at Lee's advice, we recall that he didn't really mourn and move on from his son's death. He, to some extent, arranged the events of the kindly ones that led to his own demise. Right. Now, walks the night alone is ready to go. Yes. Took us 20 pages to get Master Lee's name, so I'm referring to the cat by name. <laughs> Master Lee asks if there's any way out of the desert. But then he is sitting alone on the open sands with nobody around, but walks the night alone. He staggers through the desert, following the kitten, until he hears a mad laugh. Yeah, and there's like a creeper. A creeper, yeah. There's a, <laughs> there's a creepy sailor marionette in a fortune-telling machine. And then the fortune-telling machine turns into a claw machine. Uh, I should mention that Lee is suddenly on the edge of a, on the precipice of a vast canyon. 
Uh, the fortune-telling machine turns into a claw machine, which Lee operates to pull out a bridge, which he uses to cross the canyon. He's pretty sure now he's dreaming. This is some dream logic. I'm pretty sure this is bullshit. How could he be so good at the claw game? He didn't even have a coin. It seems like he got it in one. I guess he did have a coin. Because he tried to give one to Morpheus, and Morpheus wouldn't take it. Oh yeah, so he could pay that coin to play the game. This is not just dream logic, but it's a dream that the sage could never have. <laughs> That's true. But it's the soft places, you know, they do that to people. Yeah, and they're appar they apparently exist outside time to some degree. Have I crossed the bridge at all? Am I again experiencing what I have already experienced? I cannot say, and truly do not know. For the second time, my feet take me toward a tent. Yeah, he's having deja vu as he sees what seems to be the same tent in the desert. But the figure who greets him on approach has white hair and white speech bubbles. Greetings, Master Lee. And to you, Master. Pardon the confusion of an old man, but have we not met before? We have met, Master Lee. There was a man across the chasm who could have been your brother. You met me, Master Lee, a long time ago. Yeah, so this is Daniel, the new dream. The soft places being outside of time, Lee could run into both of them within the span of a day. An army rides up? Yeah, so I have that Daniel leads him to it, but either way, they, they run into this army. Now, this is the Wild Hunt, and we met them in Sandman number 39. They had asked Morpheus, excuse me, they asked Gilbert, Fiddler's Green, to return them to the true world, and they were told that their business was with his master. Are you the lord of this realm? I am. My lord, we have been riding for so long a time. That is why I am here. The time has come for you to leave this place. What will happen to us now? Will you return us to the times and places from which we came? Or will we crumble to dusk and, forgotten, become one with the desert? Omnia mutantur nihil interit. Perhaps, Daniel answers. And this came up the last time we saw them as well. They've been stuck in this dream desert for ages, and they don't know when they return, whether they will simply wake from their dream and be back where they were, or whether they'll crumble to dust and cease to exist because they've been gone for so long. Daniel maybe does, maybe doesn't smile. That's kind of the way that Lee describes it. And he turns away, and there is a sound of thunder, and suddenly the army is gone. I have no liking for prisons, Master Lee. Sometimes I suspect that we build our traps ourselves, then we back into them, pretending amazement the while. So that obviously kind of invokes the sense that Morpheus made his destiny for himself. Right, yeah. But whether this is the case or no, it is still a worthy thing to open cages. It is still a virtuous act to free the imprisoned. It seems like Daniel is taking some time to go through parts of the dreaming and free people that Morpheus has trapped or cursed, the wild hunt among them. He also mentions that tools are a type of trap. One day, I know, I must smash the emerald. Daniel asks Lee where he's going. Lee says into exile. Daniel offers him the chance instead to come back to the Dreaming and be his advisor. I am going into exile, sentenced to be prefect in the farthest outpost of the Empire. I am quite an old man, and the Emperor is still a young man. Therefore, I do not expect to ever receive a message telling me I can return home. I shall not live to see my wife again or the village of my birth. But I have spent my life in obedience to the will of the Emperor, and the Emperor has sent me to the village of Wei. I will do as my Emperor has commanded. Yeah, now Daniel says that if he changes his mind, Lee can still reach him through Walks the Night Alone. Right? Yeah, he says, tell the kitten, he will tell me. <laughs> and Lee says, uh, Lee asks what the writer said before he disappeared. 
Omnia mutantur, Nile and Terret. Everything changes, but nothing is truly lost. It looks for a second here like Daniel's cloak is the desert, and Master Lee is laying in it. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And he is laying there when the cat bites his hand. Yep, which causes him to wake just in time to call out to some passing riders, which turns out to be his guide, and he is saved. The kitten saved my life, making me cry out. Yeah, so he said earlier that it was foolishness to bring the kitten into the desert, but doing so saved his life. That's kind of a cool... Yeah, and it's a virtue to free those who are trapped, like the kitten who was in a village where he was going to die. I have saved his life as he saved mine, and am responsible for him. We cannot evade our responsibilities. That which is dreamed can never be lost, can never be undreamed. Lee wonders if what happened in the desert was just a dream, but he says, But truth or no, I still behaved in the correct manner, and correctness in behavior is one of the cardinal virtues. He decides that he really is going to write that letter to his friend when he gets away. I mourn myself no longer. I cherish the pain in my hand. Only the phoenix arises and does not descend, and everything changes, and nothing is truly lost. So, that was a sequel to The Soft Places. Yeah. Eagle-brained listeners may recall that I didn't particularly like The Soft Places. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't crazy about this issue either. Mm-hmm. It has some, some nice moments, some well-constructed dialogue. Mm-hmm. It has a cute kitten. (laughs) (laughs) That's worth noting on the list of virtues. But it doesn't have any, like, deep themes that really engaged me. Okay. I can see why it's something that Gaiman wanted to do, to at least once have an issue where a character sort of could meet both Morpheus and Daniel. Ah. Could an ordinary character, I suppose, because all the characters in the Dreaming have done so. But right. but could be a perspective on the differences between them, and we do see a little of the difference as Daniel is going around freeing things that Morpheus has trapped. You know, ending Morpheus's lasting vengeance. Yeah, you know what would be funny is if Master Lee talked to Morpheus and was like, "Thank you, Dream King," and then he talked to Daniel and was like. Hell with you! You're not him! (laughs) I like the other dream thing I met in this desert better. (laughs) Have I mentioned before on this podcast the idea that, like, Morpheus is kind of the Old Testament and Daniel's kind of the new? I don't think so. Okay. Go into that. I'm not sure there's a lot of detail to be had there. I'm not, you know, uh, I don't have a minor in theology. But Morpheus is, like, kind of, he's sort of proud and vengeful. Right. The Old Testament god is characterized as, like, having very strict rules and exacting punishments on people who break them. And being very proud and aware of his ancientness and power. Which is all kind of stuff that we see in Morpheus. And Daniel, of course, is born in the course of this series and is rather more forgiving. Well, yeah, I think that's it's fair analogy in any case. Whether it's a deep theme of the book, I'm not so sure. But, yeah. Is that a cat with a gigantic wang? What? Oh! <laughs> <laughs> Maybe its tail is between its legs? Oh, yeah, that's probably what it is. <laughs> not necessarily, though. <laughs> this is one of the interstitial images. <laughs> 
All right, Sandman Shakespeare 2. It's a long one, folks. <laughs> this is it, the final issue of Sandman number 75, The Tempest. Interesting credits on this one. Uh, written by Neil Gaiman with additional material by William Shakespeare. Credit where credit's due. Illustrated by Charles Vess and lettered by Todd Klein. Colored by Daniel Vazo with separations by Digital Chameleon. Edited by Karen Berger. And special thanks to Brian Talbot, John Ridgway, and the mysterious Mr. Zed. Okay, now, we've seen Brian Talbot before in this series. He inked the last two issues of Game of You. Drew the Song of Orpheus and drew scenes at the inn in World's End. He also drew the Hellblazer Annual, The Bloody Saint. John Ridgway drew the first nine issues of Hellblazer. He also worked on Miracle Man, though not, as far as I can tell, the same time as Gaiman. Now, because of these weird credits, I did a little research, and according to a post on Neil Gaiman's Tumblr, Charles Vest did the layouts for this issue, and then he, Talbot, Ridgway, and Michael Zuli, that's the mysterious Mr. Zed, all penciled pages, and Vest finished them. Where do we know Zuli from? Michael Zuli drew... The issue uh, we just read. Yeah, right? that's right, The Wake. No, not the issue we just read, but yeah, the one before that. Okay. Who did this cover? Dave McKeon, I believe. <clears throat> We've got a giant form looming over a village, or maybe it's a boat or a planter? I'm not sure what that is. Yeah, it's like an island, except instead of on land, it's on a table. Okay. And the the giant seems to be sort of casting a shadow, like, with its fingers on its chest. Like a shadow puppet? Yeah. Not sure what's going on there. It's also worth noting that we don't recognize this figure as being anyone in particular. Yeah, I guess it could be standing in for Morpheus, but then again, maybe not. So we open on the opening lines of Shakespeare's The Tempest. And then we see Shakespeare writing them in September 1610. Father, there is a storm brewing. What's that, Judith? A storm? Yes, there would be a storm. Now, Morpheus first met Shakespeare in Sandman number 13, Men of Good Fortune. They made a deal where Shakespeare would write two plays for Morpheus. We saw the first one in Sandman number 19, A Midsummer Night's Dream. Didn't something happen to his son Hamnet in that issue? Yeah, we learn at the end of Midsummer Night's Dream that Shakespeare's son Hamnet died young. Oh, was that all? The fairies didn't replace him with a changeling or anything? That's not what happened. Okay. What would you be a writing, father? A play, Judith. Not a funny poem. A play. And you will read it to me, father, when it is done? And make the voices also? Aye, when tis done. That's kind of what we do here on this podcast. We... <laughs> guys, we make the voices also. <laughs> Following in the footsteps of William Shakespeare. Yeah. <laughs> she says that Mother said he was done writing, and he says that'll be true soon enough. He starts to explain the plot of The Tempest for her, which just kind of fills us in in case we didn't know the plot of The Tempest. You want to fill us in a little bit on the plot of The Tempest? It's about a lovely young girl, just like you, my dear, who lives on a deserted island with her old father, who is a powerful magician and secretly the exiled Duke of Milan. And how a gallant prince comes and takes her away from the island. Mother, Judith goes on, would be happier if Shakespeare had written nothing but comedies. She says nobody goes to the theater to be made glum. She also mentions that masks are in fashion in the theaters right now, and Shakespeare says, then I shall put a mask in this. He says that he's writing this play for the king, but not Scottish Jimmy. Now, Scottish Jimmy would be the one they call King James the Sixth and First, Sixth King James of Scotland and First of England, the first king of England from the House of Stuart. Oh, he was Mary, Queen of Scots' son. That's right. 
And as you might surmise from the uh, Bible named after him, he was pretty religious, although not so religious that he didn't write a treatise on demonology. He was against it. <laughs> He's also a pretty major character in Neil Gaiman's 1602. Ah, I see. There's kind of a suggestion here in this conversation between Will and Judith that Shakespeare's career has gotten grimmer, which we might imagine follows the death of his son Hamnet in 1596. And it is true that there is kind of a loose division of Shakespeare's career with most of the comedies before 1602 and most of the tragedies after. Yeah, even The Tempest is sometimes referred to as a romance mm -hmm. rather than a comedy, though it has a happy ending. I mean, especially compared to the first play that he wrote for Morpheus, mm -hmm. A Midsummer Night's Dream, is a very comedic comedy. Right, like the most comedic of the comedies. Yeah, whereas The Tempest, well, it's not quite the most tragic of the comedies. That would probably be Merchant of Venice. Right. But it is pretty dark. Yeah, which is kind of what Judith is bringing up here. So Mother, which is to say Anne Hathaway, not the one that's running now, interrupts and, pissed at Will's frivolity, sends Judith to bed. Right. She doesn't want Judith telling it all over Stratford, the names that people secretly call King James. Yeah. And she upbraids Will for not pushing Judith to get married. Why do you not advise her to do what many another lady of her advancing years has done to snare a husband? And what would that be? Why, to set a snare with her glance and bait it with her coint. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Then, when her belly swells, her poor silly swain will have no choice but to make an honest woman of her. Well, and here's the punchline. Was that not what you did when you were six and twenty? Anne is kind of amused by that. And then she mutters, I. <laughs> so, Neil Gaiman just totally got away with putting the word cunt in here. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know that there have been boobs and issues in this comic, right? Where? They can get away with a lot in the Vertigo line. I guess. I still am surprised that you can get away with that word. Even if you do put it in old time. Maybe that's how he got away with it. We have talked before about when and whether they're allowed to slip fucks in. Right. Well, especially it seems like... Um, in early Hellblazer they wouldn't use it? It seems like in Hellblazer, the current... Not the current run of Hellblazer, but the run of Hellblazer that we are currently reading. Mm -hmm. He is not allowed to say fuck. Mm -hmm. So, Will is going to the pub, he steps out into the rain, and we get our title for the final issue, The Tempest. Also the name of Shakespeare's final play. So Will is greeted at the pub by a woman named Mistress Quiney, who, in one of the series' stranger references, is quite clearly Grandma Ben from Jeff Smith's Bone. Huh. Well, that's kind of cool. I'm not familiar enough with Bone to have caught that reference, but I am familiar enough with it to find it kind of cool if there's a reference to it in here. Mm-hmm. She's got the big muscular arms and the big protruding chin. Mistress Quiney's son Tom starts to tell a boring story about a conversation he had with Judith this morning, but Mistress Quiney doesn't want him making fun of Will. Oh, I thought she was yelling at some other guys for making fun of Will. Oh, yeah, she does seem to be barging into these people's <laughs> conversation. And it's kind of hard to classify what Tom was saying as making fun of Will. Yeah, but at another table there were guys talking about how William Shakespeare causes plagues. The but, cause of plague is sin, the cause of sin is plays. Yes, exactly. Um, There's also something kind of dramaturgical about Tommy's conversation with Will. Well, she says, hello, Tommy. So I says, hello, Miss Judith. And she says, tis a fine morning, etc. You know, he's kind of going back and forth like a... He's doing dialogue. Yeah. Yeah. 
The reason that Mistress Quiney doesn't want people making fun of Will is that he paid her husband's debts. Yeah, she doesn't seem to know how he incurred them. We'll come to that later. Yeah. And she keeps going on about this subject until Will points out that Tommy is gone. At this point, three drenched strangers come in from the rain. Yeah, I never know how to pronounce this word when it's clearly in English. Is it Ola? I guess. Or is it Hala? Yes, one of the three is Wonder Woman. <laughs> we are sailor men. I am a bosun. My friend here is a cook. Our doxy is indeed, as she appears, a doxy. And they've got something scary under a blanket. They're showmen of a sort, and they start bragging about this corpse that they have. It smells like a fish, like a salted cod's head. Yeah, now they call it what at the time they might have called it, which is impolite. They call it a savage man. They also say it's an Indian. Yes, and they want the folk in the tavern to pay to see it. Everybody basically agrees to pay, except for Will. Yeah, Will's not shelling out a penny for their ghastly peep show, and I agree with him. They do eventually uh, reveal the face of this mummified man from Bermuda, and Mistress Quiney is horrified. Oh, oh, tis a raw head or a bloody bones, a monstrous thing. I never saw such a thing, not in all my born days, and such a terrible smell. I had never heard those words before, so I apologize if they are offensive. Rawhead and Bloody Bones? Yeah. Well, I did a little research. Rawhead and Bloody Bones are sort of bogeyman figures from the 16th and 17th century myths, both in England and over in the United States. They are sometimes the same creature, sometimes separate. I am going to explain the southern U.S. version because it's the most interesting one. Uh, Rawhead is a bear skull that bites, and Bloody Bones is a skeleton that comes back a few seconds after you kill it. No, I mean, it's a skeleton that dances. Are you making a video game reference there? Yeah, that was a Castlevania joke. Okay. The skeleton enemies in Mario Brothers also come back. Yeah, but the Bloody Bones is just a, a skeleton that dances. It doesn't have a head. The head bites. I see. Will Smith abandons Will Smith? Will Shakespeare. <laughs> I feel like Will Smith would also walk out. Uh, oh, yeah? Yeah. He would be disgusted. Yeah. He'd say, I'm gonna leave y'all to it. <laughs> and then he'd go. But Will Shakespeare abandons this distasteful conversation and goes to bed. And in the middle of the night, he's woken up by voices, and it's the two showmen, the woman no longer with them, dancing around and singing with their dead body. Will goes back to sleep. I also want to mention that their female companion has disappeared, and they're singing a song that seems to be about killing women. Okay. I wasn't really sure what to make of their woman not being with them. That's creepy. Yeah, there's a possible sinister implication here. Not by go hang, they maybe don't refer to the gallows, but rather just like, you know, go fuck yourself. Okay. Well, here's a, here's a creepy thought. I mean, not that it's particularly better if their corpse is an actual Indian, but what if it's not, and they just killed a woman and that's how they have it? That's what I was thinking. Okay. That maybe that's how they get their corpses. Yeah. The corpse bit is a reference to a guy named Martin Frobisher, who did actually bring mummified natives back from the New World to show off in England. And it's very possible that Shakespeare would have even seen them around the time he was writing this play. But yeah, we're now in the play The Tempest. Prospero is sort of draping his cloak over his daughter Miranda and instructing her. He has a big magic orb and a big magic book and... His cloak is all moons and stars. His orb looks kind of like an oval-shaped window, which is something every sorcerer has to have. Word. 
I also kind of want to call out that this is a device that we will see in Unwritten many years later, right? The idea of intercutting into the story that people are reading or talking about, and it's drawn in a slightly different art style. Yeah, that's true. So Miranda remembers things that Prospero doesn't think she should be able to, and he wants to know what exactly she's able to remember. But Will is interrupted in his writing by his wife announcing that his good-for-nothing friend has arrived. <laughs> good-for-nothing friend. Well, it's nice to be able to be nonspecific about that. His good-for-nothing friend is Honest Ben Johnson. Will says he's writing his final play. Ben says, kind of half-jokingly, that it's about time. For me, I anguish over every word. I am convinced that your work would be improved if you took more time over it. Anne sets out small beer and cold chicken for them. Ben goes on to suggest that Will always steals his plots because he hasn't lived a really interesting life, like Ben has. Risking my life for my religion, I proudly take communion from the Church of Rome. God, look you. I've lived life to the full. What have you done, Will? A little tanning, held horses, a little acting, a little writing. I've lived as much life as you, Ben. I would have thought that all one needs to understand people is to be a person, and I have that honor. I suppose you do, Lord. This puts me in mind of the old days, sparring over some sack at the mermaid. You were sparring, Ben. I was only ever talking. So they head out to go to the pub. Small beer not being enough to Ben's taste. Yeah, and Will is having some trouble with the play, which he talks over with Ben. He's writing a scene in which Prospero explains the whole plot to Miranda, and he still hasn't gotten to the Enchanter's Familiar, which is the part he's really looking forward to. Ben suggests putting Miranda to sleep while Prospero explains the plot to the spirit. Ben changes the subject. I saw them building a great number of bone fires yesterday as I came up from London. Yeah, so it's almost Guy Fawkes night. That most evil and terrible papist plot to explode and burn our parliament and king, says Shakespeare. Right, we're definitely picking up that there's some conflict between Catholics and Protestants going on in England right now, and particularly King James came down fairly hard on the Catholics. There's a little kind of implication here that Ben might have personally foiled the gunpowder treason. And what exactly was your part in all that, honest Ben? I never quite understood. I, uh, assisted His Majesty and His Majesty's officers, showed them that not all Catholics were untrustworthy. And what might that be, young man? It's Guy Fawkes, Master. Him has tried to blow up Parliament. We'll burn him tonight on the fires. It's foolishness. They'll forget all this soon enough. You think so? Then let us give them something they will not forget. Shakespeare begins a rhyme. Remember, remember, the 5th of November, gunpowder, treason, and plot. There, Ben, can you complete the doggerel? Hmm, let me see. Hmm. No, I have it. I see no reason why gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. There. <laughs> right, so they personally invent the rhyme, causing it to be remembered forever. They personally invented the tagline of the movie V for Vendetta. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Ben asks how things are with Anne. Will says they're civil. I sleep on my bed in my room, and she sleeps in her bed in hers. Yeah, Ben is kind of wondering how Shakespeare could give up the, the bustle of London for this uh, country life. And Shakespeare doesn't really answer him. He provides more unasked-for criticism. <laughs> you should winnow your sonnets, Will. In my estimation, perhaps a dozen or so are worthy of posterity. The rest are prattle, not art. They will do nothing for your reputation. Yeah, Ben says that the sonnets were all written to get women into bed, which serves their purpose. But Will says he's too old for all that now. Women and men. 
That's a good point. But yeah, they were written to get people into bed. No, I think you're right. Uh, Ben says it'll take death to separate Will from his pen, but Will insists this is his last play and he'll be glad to be done. We're now back inside the play. We have Caliban and Ariel here. At Judith's behest, Will talks about adding a scene for clowns later in the show, where sailors find Prospero's books and try to do magic with no luck. Is this a scene that made it into the play? Yeah, I think so. Okay. I definitely remember a lot of sailors goofing around. Is this sort of Sorcerer's Apprentice scene where they cause trouble with the magic implements? Well, so the whole island is kind of like mysterious and weird to the sailors, and they get into a lot of trouble and just generally look like fools a lot. Ah, okay. Because they're foolish characters. <laughs> now Judith confesses that whenever she made a wish as a child, the wish was that her father was ordinary so that he'd be at home with them. I was so envious of Hamnet when he went with you that summer. He wrote letters home and Mother or Suzanne would read to me what he said, and I would weep for I could not be there with you. And Mother also would weep. Mother wept most of all. Did you not think? Did you not care? I followed a dream. I did as I saw best at the time. And by way of apology, Shakespeare adds that the play will not take too much longer. Shakespeare now spies. His daughter goes off and he now spies her talking to Tommy. Yeah, and as he watches this, he's writing a scene in which Miranda talks about not liking Caliban. Yeah, although perhaps I think, I think the parallel that's more appropriate is that Shakespeare thinks that Tommy's not good enough for his daughter. Prospero, of course, thinks that the interlopers are not good enough for his daughter, right. for Miranda. Okay, yeah. Which is a big part of why they're, like, portrayed as foolish throughout the play. Like, they're idiots. Prospero is wise. Nonetheless, in order to let his daughter have a happy ending, he has to let them take her away. Okay, so that's kind of what Shakespeare has in mind when he thinks of Tommy. I wish... I wish he would find her a more suitable suitor. He is pleasant enough. He has too much of his father in him. The old devil came to London and spent every penny he had on whores. I had to lend him 30 pounds to get him out of trouble. Anne says Will's never satisfied. Sort of like Prince's mother. <laughs> Will quotes himself a bit here, basically saying, where's the fun in having what you seek? You do not want what you wanted as soon as you have it, but must always be pining and planning after something more. She goes on to say that he dreams too much. Yeah, you live in words, not in the real world. You think too much. You dream too much. Whereas I consider myself a practical man. Of course you do, my dear. Practical men always desert their wives and run away to make up pretty tales and write pretty sonnets to pretty girls and pretty boys. It's now a month later. There's snow on the ground. And Morpheus comes to visit Shakespeare. Well, good evening to you, Master Shakespeare. Yeah. Will resumes what he was doing, which is perusing some of his old plays, and he complains that he sees no art in them anymore, just meaningless pretty language. I see no art, just artifice. How goes the new play, Will Shakespeare? Your play? It goes. I have written worse. I have written faster. He asks why he's doing it, and is reminded of their deal. He owes Morpheus two plays. They are now on the island from the Tempest, and there's fairies and a storm flying around when all of a sudden Will is awakened. Go to thy bed, silly man, says his wife. He was sleeping at his desk. Yeah, which is where you talk to Morpheus, I guess. Later on, Will is writing about a man who smells like a fish, obviously inspired by the corpse in the bar. Right. He next has a conversation with a priest of some kind? Yeah. Probably a Protestant priest? Anyway, 
It turns out that Will is sprucing up some of the sonnets for them. The minister says that Will's talent comes from God. And if it does not, Will wonders. I would not have taken you for an atheist, Master Will. No, no, you mistake my meaning. What if a man did not take his talent from God? What if he knew not where it came? What if it came from some devil, some centibos? What if he bargained with the powers of the dark for talent, for power, for craft? Then he would be damned. Why ask you this? Will says he's talking about the magician in the play. He doesn't want to see his hero Prospero damned for sorcery. Like poor Faustus. Right. Ah, then at the play's end, let him break his staff and burn his books and renounce all magics. And he will no longer be damned? Prayer is a most efficacious thing. What did you say in that psalm, eh? God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore will not we fear, though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. Fine phrasing, sir, fine phrasing. So he's, he's earned a friend in the church by doing a little writing for the church, but he's begun to be concerned about his deal with Morpheus. Later on he mentions that he also snuck his name into one of the psalms that he uh, punched up. Right. It's January of 1611, and Will proudly reads the Our Revels Now Are Ended speech to Anne. Which is the next month. Yeah. We are such stuff as dreams are made on, he says, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. There, is that not fine? I am pleased you mentioned wood chopping, Will, for wood chopping certainly needs a doing, else we shall freeze in our bed this night. Will just smiles and says, yes, my dear. <laughs> okay, now Will writes the end of the play. Or perhaps I should say the last true scene of the play. Prospero promises the sailors calm seas as they return to Milan. Is it finished? And at that very moment, Morpheus appears. Will says the play is done. Morpheus says that they're done then, but Will says he's spent his life in Morpheus' service, and they should have a glass of wine before they part. I see. Then we shall take a glass of wine in my house. Tell me, Will, do you see yourself reflected in your tale? He says that he does. He certainly sees himself as Prospero, but also as Ariel, a sort of ephemeral spirit. Also as dull Caliban and dark Antonio brooding and planning. And as the jesters and the clowns as well. As he talks, they walk into the dreaming. For mercy's sake, where are we? We walk to my house, Will. There is nothing to fear. We were talking of reflections, of the play mirroring life. Nothing to fear? I thought I heard the beating of mighty wings as in a nightmare that rode me when I was a boy. You do, but have no fear of them. Let us talk of tales and plays. The wings, I have to think, are a callback to Sandman number 8, the sound of her wings, in which the sound of death's wings beating was heard whenever she took a soul. Oh, I just pictured a scary-ass winged creature, but, you know. But you could be right. It could just be a nightmare, but it's interesting to me because Shakespeare is feeling old and near the end of his life, so it's like he hears death closing in. Yeah, he also mentions at one point that he's 47 years old. It's true. Will laments that life is not a play, that there's no chance to step backstage and see the actors. But that is precisely where you are now, Will. Welcome to my house. Yeah, we see the Dream Castle and the Three Guardians. Yeah. And we see 1600s Merv, who has a turnip for a head instead of a pumpkin. <laughs> yeah, I loved that. Sir, do I dream? Indeed. What wine would you like to drink? When I was young, in my first month in London, a gypsy girl gave me wine to drink. It was tawny-colored and sweet as honey, and after I had taken a sip, she kissed me, and no kiss had ever tasted finer. Nor no wine, neither. 
So Morpheus gives him, of course, that exact wine from his memory. Yes, it is as I remember. It summons many memories, not all of them good. But still, for this as for your other boon, I thank you. And then he asks why he was given his gift of words, and why him? Morpheus gives him a flashback <laughs> to him talking to uh, Kit, uh, Marlo, Kit Marlo, yeah, and saying, I would give anything to have your gifts, or more than anything to give men dreams that would live on long after I was dead. I'd bargain like your Faustus for that boon. Why me, Shakespeare asks, and Morpheus says, because he had the talent and because he wanted it so badly. And because he was no worse a man than many others. Will asks what would have happened to him if they hadn't met at the inn in Sandman number 13. You would have written a handful of other plays, in quality no better than, say, The Merry Devil of Edmonton, and then you would have come home to Stratford. You would have taught school, saved a little money, you would have bought a house, let it out, and bought another. You would have made your money in bricks and mortar, enough for your family's coat of arms, enough to make them forget your father's setbacks. You would not have been satisfied with your life, and from time to time you would have bored your children with the tales of your years in London, your days on the stage. So, yeah, so if he had never had his gift, he would have had a happy but ordinary life. And Will asks, And Hamnet, my boy, would he have lived? No, do not tell me that. You have said too much already. Will wonders if it was worth it. Not just giving up that simpler life, but never truly feeling anything for himself, always saving it for the page. I watched my life as if it were happening to someone else. My son died and I was hurt, but I watched my hurt and even relished it a little, for now I could write a real death, a true loss. He also is still concerned by the conversation he had with the minister. As a good Christian, I may not hold with pagan things, and it seems to me that you are a pagan thing. I am of your faith. I am of all faiths in my fashion. You play with words. Am I bound to hell for trafficking so with you? Only if it would give you pleasure to go there. It is a cheerless place. And that's something we've heard before, that people go to hell if they think they should in this universe. There is no witchcraft, Will. No magic. I opened a door within you. That was all. So why this play? There is some of me in it, some of Judith, things I saw, things I thought. I stole a speech from one of Montaigne's essays and closed with an unequivocally cheap and happy ending. Why did you not want a tragedy, something lofty, something dark, a tale of a noble hero with a tragic flaw? <laughs> I wanted a tale of graceful ends. I wanted a play about a king who drowns his books and breaks his staff and leaves his kingdom. About a magician who becomes a man. About a man who turns his back on magic. So this is kind of neat. Morpheus obviously already is a dark hero with a tragic flaw. Yes. But he wants a story where someone changes, because he is not able to. I have earned an answer to my question. Why? Because I will never leave my island. I am prince of stories, Will, but I have no story of my own, nor shall I ever. Unless you count the comic book. But we've been reading it! <laughs> Will wakes, it's all over. The play, all the plays. The burden of words is gone. He also knows that he'll never see Morpheus again. But he still has an epilogue to write, which he does without any help from Morpheus. I'm not sure what order am I supposed to put these speech bubbles in. Maybe if I just had the actual text. You know, just look up me. the text. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Eric just reached behind him. And pulled up a, a, a massive tome of Shakespeare, which he had in arm's reach. <laughs> that is the person you are dealing with. <laughs> now my charms are all o'erthrown, and what strength I have is mine own, which is most faint. 
Now tis true, I must be here confined by you, or sent to Naples. Let me not, since I have my dukedom got, and pardoned the deceiver dwell in this bare island by your spell. But release me from my bands with the help of your good hands. Gentle breath of yours my sails must fill, or else my project fails, which was to please. Now I want spirits to enforce, art to enchant, and my ending is despair, unless I be relieved by prayer, which pierces so that it assaults mercy itself and frees all faults. As you from crimes would pardoned be, let your indulgence set me free. And then, traditionally, Prospero waits to see if the audience approves of the play, and generally is relieved at their uh, applause. Because it means he doesn't have to be imprisoned on the island anymore. Right, set me free with your hands. Right. I saw Patrick Stewart yes. do The Tempest one time, and I very vividly remember him giving that speech. And his, you know, look of relief <laughs> <laughs> upon receiving the applause from the audience. Well, that's nice. That's a good story. But I'm amused by this notion here, like, is Gaiman suggesting that the apology in The Tempest is the worst thing Shakespeare ever wrote, the only thing he wrote without his talent. See, I, I think it's a pretty good speech. So I guess I prefer to think that, like, maybe he, he picked something up along the way. Or he had it inside him all along. He did have it inside him all along. They said that. Murphy they said, said that, that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but maybe he no longer has the, uh, <laughs> the inspiration. You know, mm -hmm. maybe what he got was like a somewhat weaker version of Richard Maddox's Curse of Inspiration, mm -hmm. you know, and now he's able to write this like free of that. Yeah, I mean, Gaiman chooses to end his story on it, so he must have liked the poetry a little. We get a quick epilogue here to Shakespeare's story. Judith marries Tom, but they're not happy. Will dies two months after this of an illness caught while drinking with Ben Jonson. Anne dies seven years after that, the same year the first folio was published. He wrote nothing more alone after The Tempest. And then we have a sign-off here. Neil Gaiman, October 1987, January 1996. And that is the end of the series. Yes, at least for now. Although Gaiman would revisit this world a couple more times. It is the end of the main series. Yeah, I noticed that the, the last line is he wrote nothing more alone after The Tempest, and The Tempest is also the final chapter of this book. Right. And so it's a double meaning, although Gaiman would write other books as well as more Sandman come the time. Right. So let's talk about the issue first. What did you think? I did not love this issue. I really like The Tempest, but I don't know that we needed to re revisit Shakespeare. I guess it's a dangling plot thread that needed to be cleaned up. But this is a double or triple length issue. It's a lot. Mm -hmm. And it just doesn't feel super necessary. And at the very least, I think I would have ended on the Hobgadling issue instead of on this one. Okay, you just feel like that one's a better ending. Yeah. A more appropriate way to close the story. Right. I can see that. I do like this issue quite a lot. I think it's important that we got back to Shakespeare and saw the other half of the deal. The other play that Game and Reads is about being dreams. And to me, there's something appropriate, too, about ending with Shakespeare, ending with an author who was a great inspiration to Gaiman as well. Yeah. Kind of attesting to the, the power of writing and the power of dreams. Gaiman did borrow Shakespeare's character to play a main part in The Kindly Ones. So, yeah. He borrowed uh, Robin Goodfellow from Midsummer Night's Dream. Yes. 
who teams up with Loki. Obviously, Loki also lifted from Norse myth, not an original character. Give me your hands if we be friends and Robin shall restore amends. Yeah. Puck reads the apology in Midsummer Night's Dream. I think Gaiman likes the idea of ending on the apology, the way that some Shakespeare plays did. <laughs> He's a self-effacing Englishman to the core. <laughs> Fair. I think there's a good argument that it goes on a little long. This is, of course, more than a full-length issue, and it has a lot of cutting back and forth to the play. It's meandering, for sure. It's meandering, and it's kind of overly gloomy. Okay. Do we really need to see (laughs) sad old Shakespeare, (laughs) you know, kind of stewing in his regrets? Well, I see what you mean, but he's a parallel with Morpheus that way. Well, a little bit, I suppose. In that he's a guy who lived a long time ago, so he's dead now, so he died. So he came to the end of his days, and Morpheus also came to the end of his days. Well, he's a guy who was sort of on top of the world, but, but hmm, I'm just wrong. No, I, I think you're on to something there. He, he's, he's, he's feeling his age. He's feeling his regrets. Go ahead. He was a man who lived in dreams. <laughs> it's just... He was always alone. No one to share the game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we should mention that this is Charles Vess art. I'm a big fan of Charles Vess every time he's appeared in this series. And I think he did good work here. Yeah, it looks really good. I'm not crazy about this particular iteration of Morpheus. Okay. He looks like a bit of a sour old man. <laughs> not a, you know, cool, dark, mysterious figure. Yeah. But... He's showing a side to Shakespeare that we rarely see. Like so many issues, this is a, a mundane getting a view of Morpheus. But Vess's Shakespeare looks good, and his Tempest characters look good. Yeah. Well, we'll get to it during the panel discussion as well, but thoughts on having the series behind us? On the series as a whole? Well, one more thought on this issue. I guess it is appropriate, like, Sandman being such a story about storytelling, mm-hmm. it is appropriate to end on an issue that makes that parallel really explicit. A story about a storyteller telling stories with the power of dreams invested. Right. Yeah, I'm happy to have finished the series. I really like Sandman. The first time I tried to read it a few years ago, I didn't think it was for me. But yeah, I'm, I'm really glad I revisited it and finally got it finished. This is a favorite series of mine. And while a six-issue epilogue is certainly indulgent, I think there's a lot of good stuff in this volume. I'm I'm very uh, glad, a little proud that we finished the series and we have this done and we can always say that we did this. Hell yeah. The Vertigais. We came, we read, we recapped and reviewed. I thought you were going to say we kicked its ass. (laughs) (laughs) Take that, Neil Gaiman. (laughs) Bill Murray, you know. Anyway... (laughs) Bill Murray. We came, we saw, we kicked its ass. It's a line from the movie Ghostbusters. Oh. I'm not real super familiar with Ghostbusters. I've seen it, but... Oh, it's a I good don't, film. I don't have it memorized like, like some other people. Next week on The Word of Guys, the movie Ghostbusters. <laughs> probably... We're like, gonna make Eric watch it again. Probably any line from Life Aquatic or Lost in Translation that you could quote, I would probably recognize. Yeah, fair enough. But not Ghostbusters. But yeah, this is a wonderful series. I'm glad to have had the opportunity to read it again. And thank you, Neil Gaiman, and so many others, for your wonderful work. And thank you, listeners, for those who have stuck with us this whole time. 
And thank you for reading this with me, too. Oh, it was my pleasure. It's, it's been a pleasure. A couple of things to look forward to. We have our panel discussion of Sandman, as mentioned earlier. In this slot of the rotation, we will be beginning our coverage of Lucifer by Mike Carey. That's right, so look forward to the Morningstar option. But first, join us next week for Hellblazer as John Constantine receives bad news in Dear John. Vertigize is written and hosted by me and Sean. Sean produces the show. I handle social media. If you like our show, you should check out our website, vertigize.blueberry.com. We've got lots more episodes, plus show notes on every episode. If you want to get in touch with us, and we'd love to hear from you, you can reach us by email, vertigize at gmail.com. If you send in listener questions, we'd be pleased to answer them. You can reach me on Twitter at BlankCastSean. You can reach me on Twitter at Vertiguys. We also have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash Vertiguys. It's been a while since some of that stuff was updated, but that's because we didn't have an episode to give you for a while. We had a couple of scheduling conflicts. We really just dropped the ball, but we're happy to be back on it. You really definitely didn't get married, right? I... Things are hazy. (laughs) I have it on good authority that no legal marriage (laughs) took place. Um, If you can use whatever podcast technology you have to leave us a positive rating or review, we would certainly appreciate that. Help spread the word about Vertiguys. But as always, thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody. the dawning It's just a restless feeling by my side Early dawning Sunday morning It's just the wasted years so close But yeah, no, I have just kind of recently realized that, like, I like horror. Um, And so I'm giving lots of horror movies a chance that I probably never would have before. Not that Big Trouble in Little China is a horror movie. No, not really. There's a part where they shoot a beholder with a gun. Yeah, that's true. So that's something that I think is kind of interesting. So John Carpenter likes to put, like, at least, like, one really gross visual in each movie okay you know at least one okay if not more and and i'm sure that he wasn't the only one doing that i mean i've been focused on john carpenter but i don't want to imply and be incorrect that like he started that trend okay or anything but you do see it in other 80s movies even that have like nothing to do with horror right okay because i've also been rewatching the star trek movies that came out around that time and they usually have like at least one really gross part yeah, I guess that's true. Two, you know? And then there's that James Bond movie that came out in the guy, in the eighties where you see the guy's head explode. And they did yeah. like and did they did like the weird like special effects to make that happen. And that's a, that's true. It's like it infiltrated beyond the horror genre <laughs> of like, it's an eighties movie. You have to have at least like one really gross visual. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the unnecessary game of five finger fillet in the breakfast club is a standout. 
I don't remember that. That was a joke. That's not a thing that happens. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Too deadpan for this show, I think. Yeah, shit. <laughs> they do do that in Aliens. Yes. They play that game in Aliens, but the point is to demonstrate that Oh, yeah. what's his name? Lance Henriksen. Also in Detroit Become Human. Is he an android in that too? He's not. Spoilers for the movie Aliens. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I think that's the first fucking thing he says in Aliens. It's not even really a spoiler. He's just like, hi, I'm an android. <laughs> and Rip was like, stay away from me, you son of a bitch. <laughs> Last android I met knocked his head off with a fire axe. I'll do it again. Right. No, he's one of the human characters. I see. You know how they filmed that. He just did it really slow. They just sped it up? And they sped it up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's actually pretty great. Yeah. <laughs> I want to see that footage of him very carefully. Right. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to be here for like ten minutes. <laughs> right. 